Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Kleinman Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. The past three years have been an especially volatile period for the oil and gas industry, an industry where boom and bust cycles have long been an accepted fact of life. In recent years, the industry has been impacted by the COVID pandemic, during which energy demand crashed and the price of oil contracts briefly went negative. More recently, oil and gas prices have reached peaks, in large part due to the war in Ukraine and the tightening of energy supply. Added to these global events is the reality of climate change and efforts to reduce dependence on fossil fuels. As a result, the oil and gas industry now looks to a future that promises not only customary market uncertainty, but also the prospect that demand for its products may face structural decline. On today's podcast, we're going to take a look at the challenges that a changing energy market landscape, the energy transition, and anxiety over the future role of the oil and gas industry brings to the industry's many thousands of workers and their communities. My guest is Katie Maynard, an ambassador with the U.S. Department of Energy's Equity in Energy Initiative. Katie has held senior management positions in the oil and gas industry, and more recently is founder and CEO of Ally Energy, a company in Houston, Texas, that aims to increase the diversity of the energy workforce and help workers to navigate the energy transition. We'll talk about her work to promote diversity and about the clear challenges and potential opportunities that the energy transition presents for the oil and gas community. Katie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. You moved to Houston 20 years ago for a job opportunity in the oil and gas industry. More recently, after holding a number of senior management positions in the industry, you left to form the company that eventually became Ally Energy. Can you talk about your experience in the industry and why you chose to stake out on your own to form Ally? Yeah, so I landed in Houston, Texas, just before the Enron collapse. So I got to be a part of the Enron scandal, which was great as a young person getting into the industry, quite the eye-opener. And um, many years later, got out of kind of the power and utilities and trading part of the sector and into oil and gas. I went to work for Shell, worked there for a number of years, and then went to BP. And it was really exciting. I'm actually a trained journalist by background, communications major, but I managed to, you know, uh, stake a, a foot in my hint, my career at both companies in safety, safety and environment. And so I had the chance to see the behavioral impacts, right, of the workforce in, you know, high hazard operations. So I decided to leave because first and foremost, I think that I've been a closet entrepreneur my entire life. And most people have said, you probably should go out on your own and do something in the world. But secondly, it was, you know, it was the realization that I wanted to help the industry change its culture and, and transform the workforce. And I saw transformation of the workforce through the safety lens, but recognize that at some point, what gave us great safety performance was diversity. And I don't just mean females and males. I mean diversity of thought, diversity of background, diversity of ethnicity, right? All of those intersections. So the recognition of that, I said, if we can get it safety, 
okay, we can get to zero, right? Zero, zero harm. We should be able to address the environment, right? And so I was on a plane. This is well documented. I was on a plane between London and Houston when I was working at BP, and a man struck up a conversation and asked me what a pretty young lady like me was doing in a dark and dangerous business like oil and gas. And up until then, to be honest with you, Andy, I had never, ever, okay, ever been spoken to in that way, right? Like I hadn't come across that, but I'd heard a lot of that. You know, I heard a lot about that. And I started to think about it. You know, I'm I'm one of not many women in the room. So it hit me then and there. You are the problem, sir, right? And maybe it wouldn't be dark and dangerous if it were diverse, right? If it were more representative of the communities we serve. So I, you know, I scribbled a bunch of garbly gook on, on paper napkins. That, 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 is, that is how these things actually happen. They were on cocktail napkins. And um, I managed to drink four glasses of wine, which was, you know, probably not a good idea, but that is a theme in my business. I, I tend to get great ideas from a few glasses of wine and I stuffed those into my bag. And it wasn't until I left BP a couple years later that I found them. And I said, you know, I should talk about this with, with some friends. So I did that. I socialized the idea to a good friend of mine who is the head of diversity and HR at Halliburton. And she said, I love this idea. Let's do it. Let's go create this community, right? This platform where we can bring together energy professionals and attract new talent. And so I took the opportunity to take a package at BP right before oil's epic crash in early 2015. I left in 2014. I had about six months off, but it was the perfect timing for me to start testing the waters on this concept. And it was also equally challenging to get my husband on board because he is a member of the oil and gas industry. He's an executive at Baker Hughes in legal. And I had to convince him, hey, honey, you know, can I go start this thing, right? And and um, the rest is history. We've been, we've been in existence for eight years at the end of this year. So today you're also an ambassador with uh, the Department of Energy's Office of Economic Impact and Diversity. And you were relatively recently appointed to the National Petroleum Council by Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm. What, what's your mandate in each of those roles? First of all, the DOE role uh, as an ambassador was a role I took and was appointed into under the Trump administration. But then I was asked to kind of stay, uh, to stay on board. And obviously the remit has changed a little bit. The federal government recognizes and sees that STEM talent and a diverse workforce is important um, for energy security. Um, we need you know, qualified, capable talent across all disciplines. And we want to make sure that we are engaging the full workforce. And believe it or not, that's actually something both the Democrats and the, the Republicans can agree on. So for years, this equity and energy initiative has been underway to look at how do we bridge, you know, pathways between industry and government, academia, how do we create partnerships, how do we accelerate what's needed, right, to build this energy workforce of the future. So that's the first piece is, you know, the energy and equity. 
Now, soon after, um, about, about six months ago, I got a letter in the mail. It's one of those things you get in the letter, you know, you, you touch it and say, was this really, is this actually signed by someone? It was, it was addressed to me from the secretary herself asking me if I would serve on the National Petroleum Council, which is, you know, about 200 of the top CEOs in oil and gas. The National Petroleum Council was formed under Truman. So it is. it has a remit to advise the secretary on key issues. And so this year, in fact, earlier this morning, I had my first morning meeting. We have a greenhouse gas study, and I am going to be serving on the task group that is looking at society, kind of social considerations, environmental justice, um, how all that kind of fits in, and obviously the workforce piece uh, as well into this GHG study. So I'm really excited about the opportunity to serve our country. I jokingly tell people I am not being paid for this work. I'm actually a taxpayer, right? So I'm paying to do this work, but it's great work. You know, it's it's serving our government and our country at a time when we really need sound, balanced energy policy. And the more that we can do to get industry executives and leaders and the workforce into government, you know, into that process, I think that will help drive a better future when it comes to, to policymaking. So the last few years have been particularly volatile for the oil and gas industry. And I mentioned this in the intro, we have had the pandemic, the war in Ukraine, all of impacted energy pricing demand. And we often hear about how this volatility impacts workers in the oil patch, in the field itself. But how is this volatility felt in Houston, where you live, which is the commercial center of the oil and gas industry here in the U.S.? What has been the impact on the city and on employees in the industry? Well, the pandemic was a very difficult time for uh, for the oil and gas industry, I believe, in the field and, and here at the commercial center in the heart of the energy industry, Houston. One of the things that, though, I think that we did really well in the pandemic itself is there was a lot of learning uh, from the previous dip. The previous bust we had in 2015 was really an opportunity for us to innovate. You know, we started asking the questions of what kinds of things do we need to do differently? What kinds of technologies do we need to employ? So, you know, I remember when oil price hit $50 in 2015 and the world was coming to an end. And then I do remember that fateful day in 2020 when oil price went negative. And um, companies did a good job, I think, at trying to maintain and survive that period of, of, of volatility. But we all knew, look, the world stopped. The world stopped for 90 days. We were in lockdown for 90 days. You know, the skies over China were clear. The factories were not working. We weren't using energy, right? And so, but at some point, energy demand increased. And we know about that because we've seen, obviously, the, the war in the Ukraine. And we've also seen the comeback from the pandemic. So it is a cyclical business. Uh, it's one that my father told me, do not get into because he, he was, uh, he was a, a victim of the 1980s crash. But I love the oil and gas industry. I love the energy industry because what we do is we drive a productive future for people. And it's an exciting time. And I think that if I look back on the last few years, the volatility, absolutely there. But huge opportunities, I think, from a workforce perspective, particularly because we are under-resourced. 
So you support rapid decarbonization, and you also support uh, an all-of-the-above approach to tackling the energy transition and climate change. Can you define the all-of-the-above approach as you see it and, and how it does or does not align with how the oil and gas industry defines or envisions the energy transition? So I like to tell people this period um, in the history of energy is like a pile of spaghetti and meatballs. So everybody has an opinion, right? That represents all of the spaghetti. So if you want to define things, you can define them as, you know, we hear energy transition, we hear energy transformation, energy expansion. Words really matter. They, they, they really do, in some cases, define the lines, right, between what's in scope or out of scope. I see that it's all necessary because at the end of the day, we need energy and we need to reduce carbon emissions. We need to uh, work towards a cleaner future. And we're not there. We're not there. And the options that we have on the table give us the opportunity to get to that decarbonization faster. Now, if you look at the oil and gas industry, there's a you know, obviously there's a big discussion about adjacent, right, technologies, CCUS, you know, geothermal, hydrogen, absolutely huge opportunity for Houston. But Houston is attracting companies that are not in the traditional oil and gas space that are in the industries around solar and wind. I think that's because of Texas's favorable business environment. And also, this is the energy capital of the world. This is where Energy 1.0 started, and it's where Energy 2.0 is going to continue. So I do agree. It's an all-of-above approach. We need all forms of energy, and we need all kinds of talent to come into the market to help us deliver that energy for the future. Well, that brings me to the next question. So we mentioned before the, the uncertainty in the, in the industry. You know, you, you, you said quite clearly that your father said, don't go into oil and gas because of the volatility, the uncertainty. We've got now this new element, which is the element of addressing climate change, right? And the idea that potentially going forward, uh, demand for oil and gas is in a structural decline or will at some point enter a structural decline as people switch to EVs away from, you know, gasoline driven cars that type of thing. To what extent is this change viewed again in the commercial center of the fossil fuel industry as an opportunity or a peril going forward, particularly the climate issue and 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 what needs to be done to address it? That's a really good question. It's a it's a it's a couple of questions in a question, but what I will say is you know, for over 100 years, Houston has been at the epicenter of our energy system, and it has played a critical role in the world economy. The city is home to 44 of the 113 publicly traded oil and gas companies, you know, globally. So, you know, 14% of our total oil refining capacity is here, and 44% of the petrochemical capacity is in Houston. It's a huge, huge, huge hub. And I think that what we're going to see is, and I'm very proud to say this, you know, the Greater Houston Partnership, along with the city of Houston and several stakeholders in industry came together after Hurricane Harvey 
and developed a climate action plan. And Mayor Turner, who is the current mayor and outgoing mayor next year, was really serious about bringing together industry, the community, um, economic planners, right, to say, what do we need to, what does Houston need to look like, right, in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years? And one of the things that came out of that was a strategy on leading the transition to a lower carbon world. And Greater Houston Partnership actually has an initiative called HETI. HETI is the Houston Energy Transition Initiative. And what that is going to do for our city is bring all of these key stakeholders together to look at the kinds of questions that you're, you're talking about. Now, if you had asked me five years ago, where were we? We were not there at all. In fact, I think it took, you know, several federally declared disasters here, including the pandemic, to kind of wake up the world of business to the fact that, hey, we have a challenge, but it's also an opportunity. And there's an economic opportunity. Uh, the capital was not flowing for startups a few years ago. It, it was pretty slow, you know, going here in Houston until recently when Houston paired up with Greentown Labs and launched the second installment of Greentown Labs in Houston. So I think you're, you're going to start to see, and we're already starting to see an acceleration of the transition and getting, you know, businesses and business leaders on board. And of course, the recent policymaking, the, the legislation that's come out of Congress, you know, on the Inflation Reduction Act and the, the bipartisan infrastructure law, all of those programs are things that companies are in line to, you know, to benefit from. So I think Houston is positioned very well for the future. We have a good plan and we've got buy-in and that's very important. Now, I want to ask you, you know, there, there's been a lot of discussion uh, in this country in recent years about the fate of coal workers uh, and the challenge transitioning to new careers. I want to ask you for oil and gas workers, and this tends to be a very, you know, highly technical uh, industry with a lot of advanced technical skills. What are their transferable skills and are there opportunities for these skills most likely uh in the future in the oil and gas industry as it evolves, or are the skills transferable to renewable energy? What are you seeing amongst the, the people that you work with? Well, first and foremost, I think we failed coal industry workers. Um, and I do think, though, that there's an opportunity for the coal industry workforce to enter the clean energy workforce. And I know there's a lot of discussion about that, not just in industry, but um, at the at the federal levels and the local uh, and state levels. However, your question about transferable skills. So first of all, the skills are absolutely transferable, okay? These energy technologies need, we need to build things, right? We need to plan things. We need to construct things. So that's gonna take the same skill sets that we have in the industry today. So project engineers, project managers, right? Hands in con construction and trades. I think that where the rub right now is on workforce is how the work is delivered, okay? How it's delivered, where it's delivered, and the price. Because oil and gas workers are paid very, very well, okay? They're paid very well because guess what? It's cyclical. And that's that's part of the gig, right? Is when, it's, when times are good, <laughs> They get paid well. When times are not so good, well, right, there's no work. So I think one of the things that that we we 
really need to look at is the field work and what kind of work absolutely needs to be done by a field hand and what can be done, you know, digitally. So there's a lot of digitization happening across the industry. But I also think with the push for manufacturing to come home to the United States, all the infrastructure that's going to be necessary to, you know, to make electric vehicles and, and the electrification um, happen, there's a lot of opportunity there. But people are going to be concerned, right, most when, you know, their pocketbook is hit, hit or they have to be skilled, right, and reskilled. There are a number of companies that are taking on reskilling and upskilling of the workforce. There are a number of renewable companies I see out there that are doing programs. So Enel North America is one. Another one is uh, EDP Renewables, Sonova Energy. So some of the, the industry is already addressing this by embracing that the oil and gas workforce is absolutely critical to the future of, of, you know, of energy and taking advantage of the fact that we have that talent. Now, I say that with the caveat that I started Ally Energy eight years ago. And eight years ago, I told the world, I said, I went out on LinkedIn and I said, we need to double down on talent. And they all thought I was crazy because we were in a cycle. We were hitting, a, we were hitting the skids. We were hitting a, a, a lull in, in activity. And so we were laying people off. But here's the challenge. We stopped hiring for almost 20 years because of the 80s bust. If you start to think about the net effect of the workforce, this is why we're going to be short. We are short on this because one, oil and gas work is not work that people necessarily are excited about and the next generation isn't right excited about. And two, we stopped hiring for almost two decades. That's like a generation and a half. So the pipeline of talent is very thin. And I do see that, though, as an opportunity to galvanize new talent sources from other industries and getting communities involved in this transition. So it's an opportunity. It's a challenge, but it's also an opportunity. Well, so how do you attract people if you're an oil and gas company that's, that's missing a young generation, all right, to, to replace workers that would be aging out? Do you attract them uh, with being part of the oil and gas industry as we think about it, some new vision for the industry, or is the attraction going to be to the either renewable businesses of these of these oil and gas companies or renewables, you know, standalone? Well, first of all, I want to say all of the energy sectors, so this also includes solar, wind, you know, the non-fossil portfolio. All of these sectors are struggling for talent, period. Energy is the most misunderstood topic on planet Earth, okay? But at the same time, we're keenly aware of our environment, right? And the impacts it's having on prosperity and wealth. So people are aware of climate change, right? We're aware that we're, you know, crushing the planet with challenges. But at the same time, nobody's interested in the jobs. And I think part of that is we've not done a good job, period, of explaining energy. My kid is 12. If you go look at her sixth grade science education, you will not see a lot about energy. And that is a travesty because these kids need to understand where their food comes from, right? How do we manufacture things? We don't manufacture things in this country anymore, right? We do a lot of export import. 
So we have to really look at how we're educating Americans and the next generation on energy. So that's first and foremost, and that's for all forms of energy. Now, specific to oil and gas, I actually, I'll have to, I've got to pitch it. I wrote a piece in 2019 out on uh, Newsweek called Why Big Oil Should Embrace Activists Like Greta Thunberg. And I'll tell you the, the ethos of the piece. The ethos is these kids are marching, okay? They're marching, they're upset, they're worried about the future. Instead of talking about the bad, let's talk about come work for us, come help us solve that, that problem. We need you to be here. It's the challenge that we have is the media has said the big, bad oil and gas industry doesn't have a role in the future. And that's just not true. It absolutely isn't true. We need these incumbent companies. They have scaled technology. They have knowledge and talent. They have processes and systems. But we also need the startups. We need the scrappies like me and my colleagues at Greentown Labs, right, coming up with new ideas. because. You can't say it's either or. And that's where I get back to it's an all and above approach, not just for energy, but it's an all and above approach when it comes to talent. You know, there's a a strong expectation that the energy transition will also bring energy and environmental justice and greater equity. And the clean energy transition is taking place under a dramatically different set of social circumstances than the fossil energy revolution a century ago. And this really gets to the heart of the work you're doing with Ally and, and with DOE, et cetera. Could you talk about the opportunities and perils for workers, you know, in, in terms of inclusion in the oil industry and in the transition outside of the industry? You're absolutely right. Energy 1.0 was created 100 years ago or so, right? Pre-industrial revolution. We were living in different social times. You know, women, people of color did not have a seat at the table. We are now living in an environment that is completely different, completely different. And so we have to make sure that when we do this transition, that we leave nobody behind. And that also means oil and gas workers. They play a role. They play a significant role in the future. So I think one of the things I challenge, you know, Secretary Granholm, I challenge my my colleagues at DOE is, hey, we got to move. We get it. We got to move as quickly as possible. But we've got to do that sensibly. You know, you look at the war in the Ukraine and this is a real this is a real example, a live example of you can't switch, you know, technologies overnight. Now, do I believe that the will of the people will enable a rapid transition? Yes. We solved COVID in record time. If we are able to bring vaccines to market like we did in the past two years, I do think the next five years in the energy industry is going to be transformative. Do I think we're going to find the silver bullet? No. But we've got to have a pragmatic approach. We've got to have what I call the rational middle. We've really got to look at this as we've got to come together And I think it's an opportunity for the country to come together and unite. You know, the last several years have not been particularly good policy wise, politics, you know, the like. This, I think, is an opportunity to bring communities together, industry together, government, academia together to solve the greatest challenge of our of our generation. And that is the energy future and the environment. You know, I want to jump onto that politics bandwagon here for just a moment. 
Texas recently adopted a law. I believe this law has been adopted. Correct me if I'm wrong. That, that makes it illegal for government agencies to do business with financial companies that limit investment in the oil and gas industry for ESG purposes. And you were quoted by the uh, local ABC TV news affiliate in Houston is calling this new law political pandering. You went on to say that the government has no role in this and that fossil fuel matters for the state economy and so do renewables and Texas leads the way. What has been the impact, if any, of the politicization of energy and ESG more generally on energy workers? So I think it's a lot of noise, just like I think it's a lot of political pandering. It's hot air. It's posturing. Here's the thing. And, and look, I love my my friends in, in the federal government, both administrations that I've worked with, right? I, I love my fer- fellow Americans. I love my friends that work you know, at the city and over over at the state. But at the end of the day, the federal government, all areas of government are behind the times when it comes to when it when it comes to industry and reality. And so what I'd like to see is why aren't we sitting down and talking about solutions for all energy? You know, the governor of of Texas is has a unique opportunity. This state is going to take off. It already has in terms of business and innovation when it comes to energy, period. I don't know why we have to politicize that fossil energy is for the right and clean energy is for the left. At the end of the day, it's energy. Clean energy, green energy, all of these words, like I said before, they 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 conjure up what well, what I constitute is noise. It's it's fighting, you know, it's infighting. ESG isn't gonna go away. Okay. None of this is gonna go away because at the end of the day, we are not living in pre-industrial era. We are living in a post-internet world, right? We're living in a world that's globally interconnected. And so the the minute we realize <laughs> that we're kind of all in this together and we need to work together for solutions and that there are absolutely, absolutely, there are opportunities, economic opportunities, jobs, the kinds of things that all parties can right, can agree on, we're going to get there faster. But yeah, I, I see all of that is, is, is noise. Do I agree with the SEC and the way it's handling climate rules? No, but I think it gets back to we need a rational middle in this country. We need to start thinking about solutions, agree that we're going to disagree, but work towards getting to the middle. We have gone too far to the left, too far to the right. And I I feel like the politicians are out of touch with the people and they are also out of touch with industry. So give me, if you can, you know, what role should policy and policymakers play in this energy transition, and particularly in ensuring equity and inclusion in the transition? What, what's your view on that? Well, I think we need to engage. Look, we, we spent two years behind Zoom boxes, okay? We've stopped talking. We've been yelling at each other, using social media as a mechanism to, to, have, a, uh, to have a dialogue. I mean, look at Twitter, right? It's a complete example of a cesspool, you know? I mean, we need to sit down and have conversations with government. Government needs to meet with industry and industry needs to come together. So it can't just be the oil and gas industry. We need to be sitting together with politicians. We need to be sitting together with colleagues from the 
power and utilities sector. We need to be looking at this entire value chain, okay? Because we've long existed in our silos and silos are not- Well, I just want to jump in. I, I I think one argument might be that there has been a strong dialogue between incumbent industries and government for quite some time. I mean, at least for some parts of industry, this dialogue has existed. Are you talking about a a different quality of dialogue then? You're right. But a lot of that has been lobbying. We need to move away from the lobbyists having the conversation to the workforce having a conversation with lawmakers on what exactly the work is. Look, if I could sell my company in a couple of years, you know, make good cash, I want to go and work for a government agency and try to transform it from the outside, right? You you know, I left the industry because I saw an opportunity. But I see a huge opportunity to get more energy workers, the workforce leaders into policy-making roles. Why are the politicians making the roles? These are people that have been in, in office for what, 20, 30, 40 years, okay? Are they gonna be around when climate change in 2050 and all these targets hit? No. They're not. So my argument is we need more people like myself, my colleagues that are actively a part of policymaking that can help shape and transform, right, the way we see things from a government perspective. So, yeah, you're right. We've we've had dialogues, but the dialogues have been let's lobby for special interests. Let's lobby for this. Let's lobby for that. We need to approach this differently and we need to look at how we're going to integrate industry. Right with a balance into government, because at the end of the day, energy is the currency of life. Uh, My friend Jeff Bridges says this in his documentaries, okay? It is the currency of life. It is the bane of existence. It should be, it is the heart of our economy. So it absolutely should be a core competency in our government to have sound policymakers. And we just don't have that today. We don't. You know, Kate, I want to jump back as a final final issue here, just to something that you mentioned briefly earlier in our conversation, and that's the Inflation Reduction Act, which was the you know the big incentive package for renewable energy, amongst many other things that are in that package. What impact do you see this having? Does this change things for workers in the oil and gas sector? positively or negatively? Any opportunities opening? What's been the feeling there in Houston? Well, the feeling is mixed. You'll hear oil and gas associations that are against, you know, the IRA. But then you also hear industry leaders, big, large incumbent companies, you know, the Shells, the BPs of the world that have said, hey, the the methane reductions that are being called for, right, we're already meeting those, you know, so we're not we're not going to be materially impacted. I think who's going to get materially impacted are going to be the little guys, the smaller businesses, right? The smaller mom and pop shops. And that's the challenge I have, because as an entrepreneur, I'm not correct, you know, in the in the space uh, of of energy services in the field. But I think that there's an opportunity for us to examine how this impacts the smaller part of the portfolio in oil and gas. Now, from a worker's perspective, I think there's opportunities because I know there has been money set aside for workforce development. There's also been money set aside for plugging uh, wells, right? So that's work that's going to have to get done. I think it comes down to, though, we have to engage and have conversations about what these things really mean. That's why I regularly invite 
you know, my colleagues from DOE to Houston. I go to visit them. We've been across the U.S. together. Most recently, we were in Bakersfield, where I think the uh, cleanest barrel of oil exists because the environmental regulations are very tight in California. So I think it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity, but we have to have those conversations in order to really understand the impacts. Again, it gets back to we got to get out from the computer <laughs> and look, you know, eye to eye and have those those uh, those dialogues and those engagements. Katie, thank you very much for talking. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Today's guest has been Katie Maynard, CEO of Ally Energy. Check out the Climate Center for Energy Policy website for more podcasts, research, and upcoming events. To keep up with the center, subscribe to our monthly newsletter on our website or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Climate Energy. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now and have a great day. Thank you.